0: As we give our attention now to Colossians chapter four, let's call upon the Lord and ask for His Spirit to help us, give us understanding and a conviction of, of our sin before a holy God and also of His surpassing mercy to us in Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you as our Savior and our Redeemer. Father, our God, our Creator, we ask that you would send your Spirit to give us light, that we might understand your word, that we might understand ourselves more clearly, that we would see you in all of your glory and splendor as our triune God. Will you minister to us today and use this means that you have appointed of perfecting us, of conforming us more and more to the image of our King, and that in your mercy you would be pleased to call men and women and children out of darkness and into light For Christ's sake, we ask this. Amen. As you take your seat, turn with me. We are approaching the end of Colossians. Uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed this letter, and I I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I almost feel like I want to go back to the beginning and start over. I've got a good grasp of it now. But we won't do that. As we come to chapter 4, our text today will be verses 7 through 14, and as you read through this, it's, it's a list of names and greetings, and it kind of strikes you as, is this something that's just a formality? It's just a custom or a style that Paul's following? It's the custom of his day? Or is there something more to this? And of course, we, we believe from the outset that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So this list of names, these final greetings of Paul, are every bit as inspired as your favorite chapter in the scriptures. They're all inspired. And so we need to think about these passages, these verses in this way. And I will tell you, just by way of testimonies, I've studied this text uh, in depth this week. It's been a great encouragement to my soul. And I heard someone say one time that, that this list of names, we see these lists like this, it's almost like a group portrait. You ever seen that in a? Have you ever been in maybe in a restaurant and you've there's historical memorabilia and there's just this maybe it's an old uh, army platoon, it's a group photo and you just kind of wonder what are their stories, or you see a, a group photo in a newspaper or even a church website, um, in various or your, your family gets together. We did this at Thanksgiving with my family. We all got together and did a big group portrait, and it's fascinating to look back a year or two or ten later. And see, new faces have come and have been added in, and others have gone. And it's a bittersweet thing to study a group portrait like that. I want us to look at the text today, and with that kind of image in mind, we have a group portrait. In this portrait, there are eight men, and they're from all different backgrounds, geographically, spiritually, culturally, different places, different uh, backgrounds entirely. We have both Jews and Gentiles here. We have men with a proven track record and some who are newer in the faith. We have others whose past is less noble. Some have left an indelible impact on the world and others, we know only their names and nothing else of what they've done. But they all have one thing in common. As you look at this group portrait, you go, what's in common here? All of them testify Individually and collectively, they represent the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They represent the transforming power. Back in chapter 1, when Paul is in his introduction to the Colossian church, in verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this You have heard before in the word of truth the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. This portrait is testimony of the fact that the grace of God has come, the gospel has come, and it is bearing fruit, and it's being spread throughout the whole world. That which the first Adam failed to do, to make worshipers of all the world, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, is accomplishing this. So in our group photo, we can discern three different groups here. The one group of two, followed by two groups of of three, So it's a total of of eight men. I'm going to divide these. This was the challenge. trying to figure out how to divide this, but I'm going to divide it this way. The first two are loyal letter carriers. The next three are faithful kinsmen according to the flesh. And the last one, there's some foreboding greetings. There's a warning in the last group. Let's read together the text. I'm going to read through the end of the letter, but we'll, we'll handle today verses 7 through 14. Here's the word of God. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those at Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, Have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's take note in the first place of these two loyal letter carriers, Tychicus and Onesimus have been sent by Paul on, on the arduous, long journey, a thousand miles from Rome back to Colossae with a letter. Actually, there are probably three letters, at least, in their, the satchel, or whatever they're carrying the letters in. This letter that we're reading from Colossians, or two Colossians, the letter to Philemon, who was the owner of Onesimus, and also this letter to the church at Laodicea. Tychicus and Onesimus. Now, Tychicus had traveled. Again, think about this. We're gonna, as we're kind of moving from left to right in our group photo here, Tychicus is the first one. And, and as often, there's a caption underneath that tells a little bit, gives them their names. Well, let's, let's dig into this, and let's look a little bit about who these men are and what we learn from their inclusion here, because all of them had been together with Paul in Rome. Tychicus and Onesimus, he's sending back to Colossae, but for very different reasons. Tychicus had traveled with Paul and was likely present for some very notable events in Paul's missionary journeys. In Acts chapter 20, for example, Luke records that Tychicus was among the men who traveled with Paul as he departed from Macedonia, as he left Europe, and made his way back towards Jerusalem. Paul's desire was to be there by Pentecost. Luke records for us in Acts chapter twenty. So, so Potter, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus. We'll see his name again, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. So we know that Tychicus was by ethnicity Asian. If you will recall, when Paul was intending to go into Asia. The Holy Spirit denied him, and he ends up going by way of vision down to Macedonia. And the gospel comes to Europe, and the first conversion was Lydia in Philippi. So here we see God's providence, and yet there's an Asian among the faithful workers. Tychicus was then present when Paul preached. You remember when Paul at Troas was preaching late into the night, and a young, young boy named Eutychus was up in the window, and probably the fumes of the lamps and... Just just flesh overtook him and he fell. Three stories. Paul revived him. Tychicus was there and witnessed this whole thing. Shortly after, Tychicus was also probably with Paul when they left from Troas. And Paul, because of the trouble that he had had been in, in in Ephesus... He wanted to meet with the Ephesian elders, having spent three years among them, but he couldn't go to Ephesus, so they met in Miletus. And there's this tearful scene on the beach at Miletus. You can read this in Acts chapter 20, when the apostle Paul is pouring out his heart to them, and he says, I'm innocent of your blood. I have not shrunk back from declaring the whole counsel of God's word to you. But after my departure, ravenous wolves will rise up from among you. Tychicus was there, witnessing these things with Paul. Later on, we're told, based on some evidence in Paul's letters, that Paul sends Tychicus to Ephesus. That's mentioned in a couple of his epistles. And possibly, according to Paul's letter to Titus, uh, Tychicus was also one of two men that that he was going to send to visit Titus in Crete. So this brother has a long track record of faithful service in the gospel, and he's been a frequent and trusted messenger of Paul's. Now, in the ancient world, a messenger wasn't simply one who just carried the letter. And we'll see more about this in a minute. But that messenger would have been authorized on behalf of the writer to explain further its contents, to give some interpretation. But along with Tychicus, it's an interesting situation. Paul also sends this man named Onesimus. Now, Onesimus was a rebellious, runaway slave, likely who stole from his master and fled. Finds his way to Rome, and we're not not told how, but in the providence of God, he meets the apostle Paul and is converted. The Lord Jesus Christ saves him, and Paul testifies, this is now a faithful brother, he's useful to me, but he didn't presume upon Philemon's charity and said, Onesimus, you need to go back to Colossae and make things right. (coughs) So here we have this faithful, proven messenger, and then we have this recently converted runaway slave. What a contrast between these two men. Here in our group portrait on your left, you see these two men who couldn't be more different than one another. Onesimus trusted, though, the grace of God and his providence by returning to his master Philemon. He didn't know how it would turn out. He knew that Paul had written a letter of commendation, but he didn't know. How's my master going to respond? I mean, there's still the law of the land, and I've violated that. I've stolen from him. I've run away. What's he going to do? But he humbly trusted the grace of God that if I am obedient to the faith of the gospel, that the Lord will protect me. You see, the faith of Onesimus. And that's why Paul could say he is a faithful brother. He is a faithful and beloved brother. He's one of you. And by the way, he's going to say the same thing about their own pastor, Epaphras. He's one of you. Paul says here that he sent Tychicus, he's in verse 8, I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Then down in verse 9, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Now, again, in the ancient world, you think about this. Paul is a prisoner. He's a political prisoner in Rome. There might be things that Paul wants to communicate to the Colossian church that he wouldn't dare put in writing and send across the Roman Empire but he sends them along with Tychicus and Onesimus. He says, they'll tell you the rest. They will encourage you. Paul says, I, he's so in, he's so, his affection is driving him, his affection in Christ is driving him in his ministry towards the Colossian church. Again, even though he's probably never met these brothers and sisters there. So he sends his most, one of his most valuable messengers, Tychicus, he sends Onesimus, and he says, they're going to update you when they get there about what's been going on. And very likely, they're going to be bringing reports about the work of the gospel, even in the palace guard, even among Caesar's household. He's going to tell them stories about people who've been converted to Christ, the work of the gospel. See, the Colossians have, are very likely nervous of the fact that here's the mighty apostle who's in chains. And just as he told the, the church at Philippi, as it turns out, this has actually worked for the advancement of the gospel. I know. It seems odd to me, too. I'm in jail, and the gospel has continued to go forth because the word of God is not in chains. The word of God is not in chains. So Tychicus, and likely Onesimus as well, would have been tasked with interpreting certain things in Paul's letter. And as we've walked through an exposition of of Colossians, we've seen Paul made a number of Old Testament allusions. Well, it's a church that's mostly Gentile former pagans. They may not have picked up on some of those things that are just below the surface, but Tychicus could have said, okay, now this is really cool. Watch this. In chapter 1, when Paul's talking about the gospel going forth and bearing fruit, that's an allusion to the Garden of Eden. And see, the first Adam was supposed to do that, and he didn't. He failed. He's sinned. He rebelled against God. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, has been faithful in all those things. And Tychicus could explain some of those things that were in the letter. especially that garden imagery and of how they are now themselves the temple of God. They are the tabernacle. They are the place where God will assemble to worship. Now let's continue to this second group. So we have Tychicus and Onesimus in the first group. Again, there's just such a a stark contrast between these two men, and yet both trophies of God's grace. Then in the second group, these are, the, these are faithful kinsmen according to the flesh. These are fellow Jews. We see this in verses 10 and 11. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. They've been a comfort to me. And we'll start with the one we know almost nothing about other than his name, Justice. His his name is Jesus, called Justice, and we know nothing about him other than he is one of only three men of the circumcision who have remained loyal to the gospel of the kingdom of God. We don't know about his accomplishments. We don't know about where he's been with Paul. We don't know anything about his background. But his name has been immortalized here in sacred, sacred scripture because of his fidelity to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that he'd been a comfort to Paul. Now we know much more about Aristarchus. Aristarchus, and we see in Acts 19 for the first time, when the riot broke out in Ephesus, remember that? And, and the, the Ephesians started chanting about Artemis, and they got all riled up because they thought Paul and Barnabas were a threat to their, their worship of this pagan deity. In Acts chapter 19, verse 29, the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. So Tychicus was an Asian man. This is a European man. He's from Macedonia. We're going to find out later on. He's from Thessalonica. Aristarchus saw much hardship as he labored side by side with Paul. Here he is there in Ephesus getting dragged out by the crowd. Aristarchus was aboard the ship that crashed just off, crashed on a reef just off the coast of Malta. He was stranded with Paul for three months there, shipwrecked at sea and then stranded among the pagans at Malta. And just as we saw uh, such a contrast in this first group, Tychicus versus Onesimus, here we see another stark contrast in the second group. Here's Aristarchus, who's proven himself to be a courageous man. Paul now describes him as a co-prisoner. They're basically, the language that Paul uses is we're POWs, we're prisoners of war together. So courageous and so faithful was Aristarchus that he's ultimately ended up in the same place that Paul does. He's in jail. He's in chains along with Paul. He's endured hardship for the sake of the gospel. He's a battle-tested fellow soldier of Paul's, and when Paul sends greetings from Aristarchus, it's likely because Aristarchus was in prison next to him. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And in the contrast, now we have John Mark. You remember John Mark? John Mark of the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, who didn't finish the first missionary journey. He played the coward and he fled. In fact, he was the point of division between Paul and Barnabas prior to the second missionary journey. Barnabas, bless his heart, the son of encouragement, wanted to bring his cousin along with them. And he's Trying to appeal to Paul, it's going to be different this time. He's going to be better this time. He's going to be faithful this time. And Paul said, We can't chance it. We can't risk it. He's already failed and faltered once. We can't trust him again. Now, this is about 10 to 12 years later. Paul writes here a commendation for John Mark. Paul says, You've already received some instructions about John Mark. So see the contrast? Aristarchus was known as this brave man, even willing to go to jail. He's been been beaten with Paul. He's been shipwrecked. He's, He's run the whole gauntlet side by side with Paul. John Mark bailed the first opportunity. But God has now restored him and reconciled him to Paul. But, as so often happens, it appears his reputation hasn't gone away. And Paul said, you know, you've heard some instructions about John Mark. But if he comes, receive him. He is a faithful brother. Paul now calls him a fellow worker in the kingdom of God and a comfort to him. And later on in 2 Timothy, the the, the very final words, the dying words of the mighty apostle he requests that John Mark come and visit him. He says, get Mark and bring him with you. He is very useful to me for ministry. Now, who would have thought a dozen years earlier when Paul and Barnabas faced this schism, this sharp divide among them over John Mark, that 12 years later Paul would say, I need that brother. He's useful to me. I need him here at my side. What a testimony of God's grace. Now, what happened to John Mark in those 12 years? We don't know a lot, but we do know this. He he came under apparently the mentorship of Peter. In Peter's epistle, first epistle in 1 Peter 5, Peter refers to him as Mark, my son. Now, think about this. Do you think Peter? might have been able to teach John Mark something about recovering from betrayal? Do you think Peter could have set this young man down and explained to him that it's not all over? That yes, people are going to continue to whisper behind your back from time to time. That's okay, because the grace of God is sufficient for you. Do you think Peter might have been able to encourage Mark in those ways? Oh, saints, think about the grace of God in this young man's life. He he's, goes on to be the author of the Gospel of Mark, very likely written from Rome. But here's this contrast between the long-term, long-standing faithfulness of Aristarchus and this newfound faithfulness of John Mark, and it reminds us, that our standing before God, our usefulness in the kingdom, is not dependent upon our faithfulness, but upon Christ's. Our standing before the Lord is not dependent upon our labors, and our work, and our merit, but on the merit of Christ. He is the one who perseveres. He is the one who is faithful. He is the one in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You and I are changing constantly. Our loyalties are all over the map. But God is faithful. And here are two trophies of God's grace. They look totally different. You look in the portrait and you go, man, these guys are nothing like each other. But both testify of God's all-sufficient grace. And perhaps you've been a- discouraged at times because of your own failures, because of your own betrayal of God with your sin. And, and you see that you don't have the resume of someone like Aristarchus. And you think, can I even be useful at all? Look at John Mark and and remind yourself of God's all-consuming grace that has lifted this man from the cowardice of his youth to the usefulness of his middle age. The grace of God is more than sufficient to restore you as well, saints, to a place of usefulness. Will you humble yourself? Will you confess your sin towards God? Will you turn from that sin and, and depend wholly upon the power of the risen Christ to transform you change your affections, to change your, your, your fortitude and to make you persevere. Now Paul says these three faithful Jewish men had all been a comfort to him, but they couldn't be any more different. Justice is basically an anonymous guy. We don't know anything about him. John Mark and Aristarchus the opposite ends of the spectrum. But it reminds us of the hardships Of the gospel, Paul says of all the places he's been, of all the the synagogues that he had preached in, there are three and only three men of the circumcision who have remained loyal to the kingdom of God. It's a reminder of the hardship of the gospel. Now to take us back to chapter 4 and verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Isn't this an admonition to persevere in praying for those who are at the labor of the ministry? But also I think there's another application here as we think about missions. There were three and only three men of the circumcision, but how many Gentiles had God raised up? And when we think about missions in foreign places and foreign cultures and foreign languages. This is a reminder to us of how important it is to establish an indigenous work. As we have been praying for and raising funds for our brothers and sisters in Cuba, one of the things that's so exciting to me is, is the fact that they're establishing a seminary, they're raising up Cuban pastors who know the culture, who know the language, and we can go and help them in various ways. But there won't be Americans planting churches in Cuba. Praise God for that. It will be Cubans planting churches in Cuba. Our, our brother Vody is at the work of, of, of a seminary in Africa with the same goal in mind, to raise up Africans to go and to plant churches among their kinsmen according to to the flesh. It is vitally important. When we think about missions, it is, it is, it is economically more efficient, it is culturally more appropriate, and it is, it is, I think, more biblically faithful that we seek to raise up indigenous workers. Here in this family portrait, you have the Asians, you have, you have Europeans, you have three out of the eight that were kinsmen according to Paul's flesh. So it's an ethnically diverse group photo, and the Spirit of the Risen Christ is at work all over the world bestowing gifts to men to make them useful for the cause of the gospel. Now there are three three men left on the right-hand side of our group photo here, two who would persevere and one who does not. We have a foreboding greeting here in verses 12 to 14. Verse 12, Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. And in Paul's introduction, he speaks about receiving Epaphras He speaks of this gospel in verse 7 of chapter 1 that the Colossian Christians had heard from Epaphras. You have learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. It is very likely that Epaphras is the one who not only pastored but planted the church at Colossae as well as the churches in Laodicea and Heropolis. He had worked among those three churches. This was a hard-working man. He was a faithful pastor. He was a warrior in prayer. Paul testifies that he is one of you. Again, this, the same approbation that he gave to Onesimus. He's one of you. Here's the runaway slave converted to Christ coming back and he's given the same title in a sense that their own pastor was given. He's one of you. He's among you. And this is a reminder to us that that the pastor is of the flock. He is not above the flock. He is one of the sheep. He is an under-shepherd, yes, but he is a sheep who's just designated to help the other sheep. He is not above them. But also we can see in Epaphras a heart of love and self-sacrifice for his people, the people that God placed in his care. He was willing to travel more than a thousand miles, arduous, difficult, dangerous miles from Colossae to Rome so that he could get counsel from the, from the Apostle Paul how to deal with the threats of heresies and false teaching that were threatening the church that he was that God had placed him in care of. He wanted to know how to be instructed, how he could protect the flock of God that God himself had entrusted to his care, and he was willing to put himself in harm's way and able to do that, in order to do that. So we have Epaphras, this faithful brother. We have Luke. You know Luke. Luke is the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke and also wrote the book of Acts. And during the second and third missionary journeys, we see the pronouns in the book of Acts change from they to we. Luke is likely with Paul on most of those second and third journeys. So he traveled extensively with Paul. Uh, he, was, he, along with Aristarchus, was, was shipwrecked with Paul. Paul. Luke was there at Malta to observe Paul being bitten by the viper and the natives attending to him. And he also endured much hardship for the sake of the gospel. Here is a learned man, an educated man, uh, who was, a, a, like Paul, a cultured man, a sophisticated man. And he put himself in a place where he's sleeping in, in the hull of a, of a cargo ship, subject to raids by bandits and robbers, being persecuted in every town they go to, all for the sake of the gospel that he had come to believe. He was considered a true friend, friend of Paul's, he was a loyal companion. In 2 Timothy, Paul testifies that Luke alone endured with him to the very end, to the time of his execution. He says, Luke alone is with me. He is a true friend. So here in this last part of our group portrait, we have Luke, we have Epaphras, faithful men, and then one who's no longer part of the group he says Luke the beloved physician greets you as does Demas That's all he says Demas is included in a list of names in the letter to Philemon in the very same way the following men Tychicus and Demas among them send you greetings but this is the heartbreaking image in our group photo. Approximately, we don't know exactly the date that, that Paul wrote Colossians, but it's approximately three to four years after he writes this letter, Demas abandoned Paul and the gospel that he preached. In 2 Timothy, we read this, Demas has deserted me because he fell in love with the present world. and has gone to Thessalonica. He went home. Here the contrast, John Mark left early and stayed late. And here's Demas, so much promise, and he abandoned the faith. And it's not in my notes, it just occurred to me, the parable that our Lord told where he said, "Which, which of the two were obedient to their father? The father commanded two sons to go in the vineyard and work. One says, I won't go, but he changed his mind and he went. And the other one said, I'll go, and he didn't go which obeyed his father. Demas was the one who said, I'll go, and he didn't go. He abandoned the work. And with that agonizing statement from Paul, Demas' face slips under the water of sacred history, never to be seen again. He just disappears. No commendation is given here in Philemon. I think in Philemon or in the letter to the Colossians, there's no commendation given to Demas, and I think this is interesting, it's speculative. I'll put this in all caps, this is speculative, okay? Paul just simply says, and Demas greets you. He's given commendations to all the others. doesn't to Demas. Douglas Moo raises the same question in his commentary. He says, it's possible that Paul's brief reference to Demas here in Colossians might hint at the problem that erupted a few years later, but this might be reading more into the silence of Paul than is warranted. But I wonder. Paul says that he deserted because he was in love with this world. Was his love of the world already becoming apparent to Paul? Were there already indicators that he was not committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think about group photos that I have been a part of over the years. There's one that comes to mind that we took on, on the fifth anniversary of GFPC Conroe, and it's it's uh, we had to use the extra wide lens to get everybody in. It was a huge group. And it's, it's bittersweet to look back at those pictures. I've been to a number of, of pastor's conferences and associational meetings, and Sometimes those pictures serve as a sort of warning. I have one on my bookshelf. There's a picture of five men, including me. One of them is in prison. It's a warning that years later, some of these men pictured are either no longer in the ministry. Some have departed from the faith entirely. Others have betrayed the doctrine that they once confessed. Or they've personally betrayed the men that they once served alongside. And their own actions have betrayed their testimony. So I think the whole, this whole portrait here is, is in a sense a, a tangible, uh, vivid reminder and maybe to impress upon us an urgency that Paul taught back in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, is there an urgency in our praying for the kingdom of God, for its expansion, for the preservation of our brothers and sisters in the faith? As we look around the room this morning, do we just take for granted that this photo will remain unchanged? That everyone pictured here today will also be with us a year from now or five years from now? Our own experience tells us otherwise, doesn't it? The Scriptures remind us that that's true. And some of that is for good reasons, and and, and the Lord moves people on to uh, other glorious pursuits. We ought to be in prayer um, I think in, in particular here, this, this image helps us to remember that the Colossians need to be praying for their own pastor. He brings up Epaphras, he brings up Luke, and he brings up Demas. Now, they don't know yet that Demas would betray. But surely the news would have reached them a few years later. And as they think back on, this is a man that we've prayed for. This is a man that we, through our beloved apostle, we we, we sort of knew <laughs> It's a reminder to pray for men like Luke. Who knows? At the time, they wouldn't have known probably that Luke would go on to write the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and that those two books would would be prominent in the New Testament canon. We never know. Apostle Paul, sometimes we entertain angels unawares. We never know as we pray for a brother and sister, how the Lord may use them in ways that were unimaginable, unthinkable to us. And of course, Demas stands as a warning that not all Christians will finish well. Are we praying for one another that we will persevere in the faith together? Are we willing to not only to pray, but, but when we see those things in, in one another, a, a love for the world showing up, are we willing in love to confront a brother or sister? Are we willing to, to encourage one another and exhort one another in love and good works? Now let's, let's then step back as we've looked at these three groups in our group portrait here, let's, let's step back and look at the group photo as a whole. Now, what happens when you look back at a group photo and you know you were in it? Which face do you look for first? Yeah, it, it's the same for everybody. You're looking at, you're looking at your, own, your own image. You were, my eyes closed? Was I looking? Hopefully I wasn't picking my nose. Was somebody doing the ears behind my head? We look at our own picture. And in a sense, the same is true here. We see in this photo the overwhelming grace of God in Christ Jesus, but our eyes will naturally be drawn to ourselves in this picture. Where am I? Where are you in this picture? Look at the photo and take notice of the transforming power of Christ and ask, do do I know this in my life? Do I know the transforming power of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you been transformed by Christ to such a degree that you desire to be a slave? That you desire willingly, freely to give up your own rights and your own ambitions for the sake of Christ? Does your heart desire more and more to serve God and to sacrifice yourself for the sake of your brothers and sisters? We see seven men who did exactly that by the grace and the power of God, and we see one that abandoned the faith. And note the evidence of the grace of God in these lives. And again, if we just kind of recap what we see in the picture, here's Tychicus, a seasoned messenger from Asia, and a faithful minister of the gospel, Onesimus was a runaway slave from Colossae, saved to Christ, now a beloved brother. Aristarchus, a European man, who had endured hardship faithfully for the long haul, side by side with the Apostle Paul. John Mark, a turncoat turned faithful encourager of the Apostle, a man who now is useful to the Apostle Paul and likely many others justice, the obscure, anonymous, faithful servant whose name is known by only a few outside of heaven. Epaphras, a faithful pastor, a hard worker, a church planter, a laborer among at least three churches, willing to travel great distances for the sake of his people. Luke, The beloved physician, the, the man willing to set aside his training and his education and his culture and give that up for the sake of Christ, to put those things into practice in a way that would probably not financially compensate him to the degree he was accustomed to. And there's Demas, the deserter of the faith he once labored to advance, his love for the world betrayed you never truly loved Christ after all. Which picture do you resemble? Do you see yourself, or maybe you're, you see a composite? The scriptures challenge us. Uh, one of the things about the Word of God is it, is it is the perfect mirror. James called it that. We look into the perfect mirror of the law of liberty. We see ourselves as we truly are. Uh, we, we want to see ourselves in different ways sometimes, but the scripture points out to us as we really are, but also shows us God as he really is. And the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is beyond our comprehension. And some of these eight men testify to the fact that the gospel is powerful. And Demas is not testifying to the lack of power in the gospel. He rejected it. He loved the world more than he loved Christ so will we persevere? Will we seek the Lord's grace and help? Will we seek to pray for one another in these things? Or will we seek to to serve one another for the sake of the gospel? It's been, I mentioned this in Sunday school, but it's been fascinating to me over and over and over again um, as we working through different uh, topics and studies in Sunday school, how often it just lines up perfectly with what we're, we're studying in our Lord's Day worship. And it was the true this morning and. In chapter 9 of of, uh, Dr. Ferguson's book, Devoted to God's Church, we dealt with the issue of service. What does it mean to serve within the body of Christ? And here we see this picture of faithful service. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your kindness towards us, your faithfulness to us, and we, we are grateful that our eternity does not rest in our faithfulness, but in yours. We are grateful that you have promised to sanctify us in the truth. Your very word is truth. You have promised that you, that, that you who began a good work in us will be the one who finishes it. Lord, will you help us to repent of our own works of righteousness? to repent of any trust that we may maintain of of our our own merit, our own faithfulness, and cling to Christ, to know that any one of us can stumble apart from your grace urgently to call upon you in prayer on behalf of our brothers and sisters. Lord, will you be merciful to this church body that... The portrait that we see will will continue to grow, will be continued to be marked by maturity in Christ and in growing faith, a growing love for one another, and a growing devotion to you and to your people. We ask this for Christ's sake, amen.